My dad's the kind of guy that tells you things. He tells you things he thinks you want to know. He tells you things he knows. And he tells you because he loves you and he wants you to be prepared. So somewhere along the way, um, after I had this 1989 Ford Mustang, uh, my dad you know, was showing me this and that, I think, when I got the car. And he mentioned that the distributor cap was kind of down low. And with the distributor cap down low like that, if you went through some high water like we would get in Texas sometimes, uh, water might get in the distributor cap, it'd flood out the car, wouldn't spark, and, you know, your car would die. He told me that at some point in time, right? So Melanie and I are newlyweds, and we lived about 20 minutes from mom and dad's house, and you can see where the story's going, right? And uh, it had come a flood like it does in Texas. And we watched, you know, on the radar on the TV as the flood went by. And we're at mom and dad's house and we're driving back to our apartment that we lived in when we were newlyweds. Well, the street near our apartment was this big, wide boulevard. And it's kind of flat in Texas. You think it's flat in Nebraska? It's flatter still in that part of Texas, right? And, um, you know, the rain had stopped and I'm just driving along, talking to my newlywed wife, and drive through some deep water, and I'm like, ooh, you know, and then the car's like, and it just stopped. I'm like, oh, my gosh. So my whole thing was, you know, when I was the head of the household, when I was the man, I wanted to be able to take care of my wife. I wanted to be able to do stuff like my dad did, you know, always know the right thing to do, and if something went wrong, be able to fix it. Um, I don't know how much a 1989 Ford Mustang weighs when it's sitting in, you know, six inches of water or wherever it's sitting, but I couldn't fix that, right? I could not get the car to start because it was flooded. I could not push it. My wife got out and took off her sandals, and the two of us pushed it together out of the roadway. And then, you know, I did have a cell phone. There were cell phones back in those days, right? This was like, you know, 1997, we got married. So I called who I knew to call to help me, which really the best person to call, but the last person I wanted to call because it was me admitting I couldn't fix it, and that was calling my dad. My dad said, yep, sounds like the distributor cap. I'll get my tools. I'll be right over. Melanie and I sat in that car, and I threw a fit. I got angry. I punched the steering wheel. I even cried. Yes. Here I am mad that I could not be a man acting a whole lot less than manly, right? I don't know about you. All of us tend to have our M.O. when things don't go our way, when uh, we don't get what we want. And maybe that's a picture of mine. And trust me, I've done a whole lot worse than that, and don't get my wife to tell you any of those stories. Um, But that's just one of my moments, one that I could share with you here from the pulpit. Those moments when we wish we could take it back, those moments when we wish we wouldn't have said something or wouldn't have done something, we were less than our best when we were dumb or maybe we were just outright stupid. Jonah has one of those moments here that we are going to see in Jonah chapter 4. And if you haven't already turned in your copy of Scripture to Jonah chapter 4, I'd invite you to do so. Um, But we need to review, for those of us that haven't been here, where we've been while you're turning to Jonah chapter 4. So Jonah, the story, Jonah's a prophet. 
God shows up, it says in Jonah 1.1, and he says to Jonah, Jonah, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. Its wickedness has come up before me. God had a plan to redeem the wicked people of Nineveh, and he calls his prophet, that was his career, Jonah, to go and preach to the people in Nineveh. Jonah, however, has other ideas. Nineveh is about 550 miles to the northeast of where Jonah was at there in Israel. But Jonah decides he's going to go down to the seashore and get on a boat and go to the furthest place you can buy a ticket for, which is Tarshish in modern-day Spain, 2,000 miles across the Mediterranean. 550 miles that way, 2,000 miles that way. Seems like a lot enough distance, right? But God had other plans, and God's plan was not only to redeem the people of Nineveh, but to teach Jonah something about who he was, and to teach him about his grace and his sovereignty. And so God caused a great storm to come up, and Jonah then confesses to the sailors, it's my fault. The sailors pitch Jonah into the sea after trying to row and save him. God provides a great fish, or a whale, great fish, to swallow Jonah up and swim back the direction he needs to go. And then God causes the great fish to vomit him up on the shore. Now Jonah's still got to walk from the seashore in, and we don't know how long that took. But he gets there, and he goes to the great city of Nineveh finally. And he doesn't preach much. I didn't tell you this last week, but what Jonah said as recorded in Scripture is only five words in Hebrew. Did he repeat the five words over and over again? Because he's like, you know, throwing a fit about being in Nineveh. I'm just going to do what God tells me to do. The people in Nineveh repent. Sackcloth and ashes, fasting and prayer. They see God is great and sovereign and they repent. And that's where we find Jonah today. Not at his best. Again. If you're able to stand with me in the honor of reading God's word, would you stand together? And we're going to read Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Remember, Jonah is just four chapters, just 48 verses, and here are our last 11 today. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew you were a gracious and a compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Verse 5. Jonah went out and sat at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat in in the shade, waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade to his head and ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have any right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said, and I am angry enough to die. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this vine though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and as many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? 
Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you that you give us the story of Jonah to show us who you are and to shine the light on who we are, especially when we're not at our best. So, God, it's our prayer that you would speak to us one more time through this book today. And one more time, we would be broken and humble before you, confessing whatever sin you reveal, repenting and turning from it so that we don't act like Jonah. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. The book of Jonah is about God's sovereignty, but the book of Jonah is about God's grace. God's grace to the Ninevites, God's grace to Jonah, God's grace for all people of all nations. But it teaches us something here in chapter 1 about when I don't get my way. When I don't get my way, and some of these may be possible reactions that you have. The first one on your outline there is, I may get angry. I may get angry. Anybody else get angry when you don't get your way? Well, it depends on the situation. Some of you are like, oh, I'm not going to raise my hand. It's church. Others of you are like, it's church. I better be honest. Yeah, I get angry. Look at verse 1. It says, but Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. Your translation might say it seemed very wrong to him. Now, did you see the odd thing going on here? That Nineveh repented of their sin. God was pleased for that repentance. Go back to chapter 3. So just a quick review of chapter 3. If you've got your Bible, look, right? So Jonah, at the end of chapter 2, gets vomited up on the dry land. Chapter 3, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it. We talked about that last week. When does God have to speak to you more than once? And then Jonah obeyed and he went. And notice what it says in verse 5. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast. All of them, from the greatest to least, put on sackcloth. Then the king makes a proclamation. And notice what it says in verse 10 of chapter 3. When God saw that what they did and turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had relented. So God all along wanted to save the Ninevites. So God had compassion on them. God was pleased with their behavior. But Jonah was not. Do you see a disconnect here? When the thing that brings pleasure to God brings displeasure to us, that's a problem. Go back to chapter 4, verse 1. When Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. In Hebrew, it literally says, it was evil to Jonah with great evil. I've told you many times before, Hebrew is not a very expressive language, but it repeats words and it repeats them for um, emphasis like we do as a rhetorical device. And it repeats that word evil and it means it was evil with great evil. Jonah was that angry about it. What happens when you get angry? I mean, you know, are there some holes in the walls at your house? You can say, oh, this is when I had a fit about this. This is over here. You know, has anybody ever ended up in the ER because of, you know, your blood pressure or heart attack from getting angry and overreacting? Yeah, I had a heart attack back there in 1999. That was because of, mm -hmm, yeah, we all react in different ways. Let's go on and talk more about Jonah in our scripture. The second thing we may do is get angry. I may complain. Verse 2, verse 2, Jonah goes to complaining. Now, notice his prayer. It's a prayer, right? It's a prayer. Look at what he says, however. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this?
this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. Sounds like an excuse to me. I knew that your gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding love, a God who relents from sending calamity. So he's praying, but he's complaining. Now, I think there's a good example for us here on the positive side that God is big enough to handle our complaints. If we are angry, upset, if we have questions, God can handle any of that. So it's not that you should purify your language and not say what you feel before God, because God can take it, okay? But does it seem like the right thing to do? Because Jonah is really just pitching a fit. He didn't get his way. The Ninevites didn't get judged and destroyed. And so Jonah, in his, not just pride, I would say arrogance, maybe even use the word hubris, right? It's just giving it to God. God, I knew that you were this sort of God, and that's why I didn't want to go. What in the world? Jonah's saying the right things about God. God, you're gracious, compassionate, slow to anger. You accept people when they repent, but he's saying them for the wrong motives. Because Jonah had a twisted and wicked heart in relation to the wicked people of Nineveh. Now remember, the Ninevites had done all sorts of terrible things. They were known for being utterly heinous in the way they treated uh, folks that they fought against. So Jonah might have some reason, if you will, but that wasn't Jonah's call to make. God called Jonah to go preach to the Ninevites so that they might repent and turn from all those wicked ways. But Jonah has his own mind made up about them, and he's going to complain to God even in prayer. So we might get angry. We might complain. What's the third one there? Is that I may overreact. Um, Yeah, yeah. You might bang your hands on the steering wheel. You might cry. You might complain. Whatever. Look at Jonah's overreaction. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than live. Really? You are going to play that manipulative, whiny card with the God of the whole universe? Take away my life. It's better for me to die than live. Did he really mean that? I hope not. I mean, this sounds utterly crazy. That he's like going to the nth degree saying, God, just kill me rather than let these people uh, repent. Um, Jonah is like he goes back and forth, right? He's a man of irony. He fled from God in chapter 1, only in his prayer in chapter 2 to lament that God had banished him. Oh, God, I'm so sorry, you know, that, that, well, you're the one that caused it. But then in chapter 2, he also praises God for saving him. It's That prayer is a prayer of thanksgiving, if you go back and read chapter 2. But then in chapter 3, he goes and preaches his five words in Hebrew, and the people repent. And then in chapter 4, he's angry about it and wants to die. Like us. Sometimes we overreact. Sometimes we say the wrong thing. And look at what he does next. That's your fourth point. When I don't get my way, I may pout. He literally did that, right? Verse 5, Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. I think he was secretly hoping that God was going to zap him, you know. 
And so he's like, I'm going to get away from the nuclear blast zone here. I'm going to get out of the city, probably up on a hillside where I can see the whole city. And I'm going to sit down over here and pout and sulk and be angry with the Ninevites and angry with God. And I'm going to wait to see what happened. So it says there, there he made a shelter and sat in his shade and waited to see what would happen. Now, this Nineveh is the modern day city of Mosul in northern Iraq. And it's a desert, people. And it's hot, like 120 degrees hot. But there are rivers and stuff like that, but not enough to bring you know, shade everywhere. And he's sitting there out on a hillside, presumptively, or somewhere where he can see the city. And he's pouting at God. Jonah was throwing a fit. It didn't go his way. He wasn't pleased with God. God had asked him a question in chapter 4. Jonah didn't want to answer the question. His silence was enough. He went out to pout. When I don't get my way, I might get angry. I might complain. I might overreact. I might pout. I might be irrational is the final one there, your fifth one. And that's in verse 9. When you skip on down through the exchange that we'll review in a moment, when we talk about God's side of it, but God said to Jonah, do you have any right to be angry about the vine? Jonah says, I do. I'm angry enough to die. He had previously said it. We don't know how much time went between Verse 5 and verse 9, it might have been an exchange that was immediate. It might have been some time in the middle. But Jonah was so chewed up with his hatred for the Ninevites, so upset with God that things didn't go his own way, that he said, I'm angry enough to die. You've got two questions there. And the first one is, how do I usually respond? When you don't get your way, how do you usually respond? Um, If you're not brave enough to write it down, we could just ask the person sitting next to you, and they'll tell you how you normally respond. Most of us sit by people we know at church, so, um, you know, I'm sure they could fill in the blank for you, right? So maybe some of you spouses want to exchange note sheets. Maybe some siblings want to exchange note sheets, and, you know, here, fill in mine. How do I normally react? And then look at what they wrote down, right? All of us have our ways we go about things. All of us have our times when we are less than Christ-like. When our sin nature, our selfishness comes out. So if you've written down how you respond, then the next question, and you know you're not going to like this one, right? What should I repent, confess now? Because you just wrote it down, or even if you didn't write it down, you know it in your head. And you know what kind of reactions are sinful, particularly when it's the God of the whole universe who is commanding you to do something for Him, and you're like, nope, I'm going to run the other way. Nope, God, I'm going to throw a fit and be mad because it didn't go my way. I'm going to get angry. I'm going to overreact. I'm going to say ugly things to you, God, and I'll certainly say ugly things about those people I don't like. But the question is, what? As God has convicted you of it, and you know what your MO is, your modus operandi, the way you normally react when you don't get your way, what do you need to confess right now? 
Because if you realize it's your normal reaction and you realize that that normal reaction is sinful, dare I say habitual, it's like a rut that you get into. I know I got my ruts. You got your ruts too. You're human like I am, right? That if you realize it, you should confess it. And your confession should go something like, God, I name fill in the blank as a sinful habit. And God, I repent, that is turn from that sinful habit. And I ask you to fill in the blank with the positive, godly, Christ-like character that is opposite of that sinful habit. To change my heart from the inside out. As Pastor David wisely pointed out about our giving, it's not money that's the root of all evil. It's a love of all money that's the root of all evil. And it's our hearts. And it's our heart that determines that. That our hearts are wicked beyond all cure. Who can understand it, it says in the Old Testament rhetorically? Well, God can. And if we confess with our, uh, if we confess our sins, that God will forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. And we need to confess even now. We consider who God is and what He's called us to and what happens when we don't get our way and how we normally respond and how we should change and confess. Yet, we've got to consider the other side of it, and this is the second half of your sermon. Yet, God lovingly confronts me. Go back to verse 2 and 3. Jonah is praying, but he says to God, this is what I knew when I was still at home, and otherwise this is why I didn't want to go. That is what I said, and that's why I was going to flee to Tarshish 2,000 miles the other way. I knew that you're gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sin and calamity. Jonah, you're going to need some of those yourself here, bucko. Verse 3, that's when he said, Take away my life, for it's better to me than die than live. But God's question, don't you love God's question? Verse 4, But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Have you any right to be angry? What is it that God routinely does or allows in your life that causes you to be angry? Is God in his sovereignty? Remember, sovereignty is rule, reign, authority. Power. And believing that God is sovereign, and just as He was sovereign in the day of Jonah, where He did these miraculous things and moved nations, we know He's still sovereign today. We may not see Him do miracles in quite the same way, but He is still God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, the Bible tells to us. That God in His sovereignty either causes or allows circumstances in our life And those circumstances in our life then he uses to get our attention that we might turn to him in prayer rather than running our own way and getting angry and pouting about it. And then somewhere along the way, we hear the still small voice that asks us, have you any right to be angry? If you're like me, you want to like, hmm, I don't even want to talk to you, God. 
I'm going to go sit out and pout and I'm going to do my own thing. But this is the God who is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger. And he lovingly confronts me and he continually pursues me because he loves me. Even when I am being sinful and stupid. Have you any right to be angry? I just mentioned the word stupid. And tell you, y'all, I can out stupid any of y'all. I'm not just talking about wearing an outfit like this so that if I go to Target, people think I work there. Because if they asked me, I would still probably help them, okay? That's just sort of stupid, all right? I got stupid that goes way beyond dressing like this, okay? And I'm not even going to tell you any of those sort of stupid stories. And please don't go ask my wife and children again. Some of you are now horrified because you're sitting in the pew going, the pastor just said he's stupid. Well, I act stupid sometimes. And the others of you are going, hmm, that sounds like a challenge. Can I out-stupid the pastor? (laughs) Kind of like back in the day, the yo mama jokes, right? You know, yo mama so fill in the blank, and you know, you outdo the next guy, right? And you'd be like, yo pastor so stupid, fill in the blank, right? Well, we all have our stupid moments, don't we? We all have our sinful moments, and stupidity and sinfulness kind of go hand in glove a lot of the times. But the fact is that God loves us, not just in spite of our stupidness, but because of our stupidness. Not just in spite of our sinfulness, but because of our sinfulness. He loves us. He knows we need grace. He knows we need compassion. And he's going to relent from sending that calamity on us. Let's move on to your next point there. Yet God provides lessons for me. Now, I use that word provide on purpose Because look at verse 6, 7, and 8. It says in verse 6, Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to shade him from his discomfort. Well, that was nice of God. Look at verse 7. But at dawn the next day, the Lord God, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. So that's at dawn. Soon after dawn, when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind. This is the same word used in chapter 1, verse 17, that the Lord God provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, to swim him back the direction he needed to go, that he might spit him up on the sea so he could go to Tarshish like God called him to, right? So you see God's sovereignty again and again and again in that God provided this, God provided that, God provided this, God provided that. Four times in just 48 verses, but three times in these three verses, God provided in order to teach Jonah something. Which leads me to ask you and I, friends, what has God provided in your life? Even things that are uncomfortable in order to teach you a lesson. Has God provided a whale to get you where he needs you to go? Remember, we asked two weeks ago, what's your whale? What's your great fish? What circumstance, what person, negative or positive, that you don't like, has God got you in the belly of because he's trying to get your attention to move you back to where he wants you to go because he's gracious and sovereign, he loves you, and he loves the others he wants you to affect by your obedience. But also, you need to ask yourself, Where has God provided shade for you like this, figuratively speaking, that you're comfortable and you're going, wow, God, this is nice. Thank you. Or where has God taken that away because the worm came or the wind came and you're like, God, why'd you take that away from me? But God is doing these things because he's sovereign in order to get your attention, in order to provide a lesson for you. 
Because if his loving confrontation, have you any right to be angry? Doesn't work. He's going to try something that takes a little more of your attention. God loves us enough not to let us be in our sin. You know, when bad things happen to us, negative circumstances, we always want to ask God why. And we want to get mad at God like he somehow set the universe against us. And that's okay. God can handle it. But you've heard me say before, why is not always the most productive question? Why doesn't get you anywhere positive? Why doesn't move you forward? Why keeps you in the past? So you can ask why, but don't stay stuck in your why. Transition to the question, what would you have me learn from this God? What is a healthier question? What are the reasons that you have caused this God? What is your motivation behind this God and your sovereignty and your love and your grace? Where are you moving me through this circumstance, God, that I can learn from you, that I can be more like Christ rather than being stuck where I am in my why, wallowing and mad at you, Rather than going, wait a second, God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. That means he's gracious and compassionate to me. He's slow to anger and abounding in love to me. And he has a plan for me because he's sovereign and he wants to move me to his will. God provides lessons for me. So, friends, we've got to ask ourselves, what are the lessons that you're in right now? Not just what's your will, but what else is God doing in your life to move you the direction he wants you to go? Your third question or third point there is that God questions my selfishness. God had already asked it before, but down there in verse 9. But God said to Jonah, do you have any right to be angry about the vine? He'd already asked him, have you any right to be angry that the Ninevites had repented? But now he asked him, do you have any right to be angry about the vine? God is showing him simply his selfishness. And God does that to me. I'm assuming he does it to you, right? You're human. I'm human. You're sinful. I'm sinful. You're stupid sometimes. I'm stupid sometimes. And so God has to ask us this question as well. This is the thing I've given to bless you. But when I take it away, you're angry about it. And it demonstrates our selfishness. It demonstrates our shallowness. It demonstrates our sinfulness. Do you have any right to be angry about the vine? Your next point there, God emphasizes his sovereignty. Verse 10, but the Lord said, you've been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. God's saying, I blessed you with this vine in a miraculous way. And I took this vine away from you in a miraculous way. And I gave you this vine in order that I might demonstrate to you my sovereignty. That word provide, God provided the great fish. That was God's sovereignty to have a fish big enough in the right place at the right time to get John to transport him back to where he needed him to be. And God provided the vine. And God provided the worm. It's an interesting side note here. that The book of Jonah, although it talks about destruction... Jonah wants the Ninevites destroyed. God says to them through Jonah, if you don't repent, your city's going to be destroyed in 40 days. And so destruction is a theme of the book of Jonah, but the only thing destroyed in the book of Jonah is the vine. 
The only thing destroyed is the vine. That God mentioned it. God threatened it. Because he knew that sometimes we've got to hear something that scares us enough to get our attention. But the only thing that was destroyed in the entire book of Jonah is the vine itself. God's showing his sovereignty. He's showing I'm in control of all these things and I can do these things, but you need to obey and follow me. When we think about God's sovereignty, we think about his grace and his love. I've got a video to show us to make us think about this idea of who's your one, which we start next week and through the month of October. So we're going to play that video for you now and just have you consider. We pastors dream about big numbers, and we should. But a daily focus on one meaningful interaction for Christ, that's the true difference maker. One friend, one family member, one co-worker, one person at a time. We want to see God move in our nation like we have never seen before. But it all starts with one. In our church, we've learned that there's nothing that we can do that is quite as effective at reaching people as simply equipping our members to carry the gospel to people outside of the church. It's not programs that reach people. It's not mailers that reach people. It's not sermons that reach people. It's people that reach people. And it is individual people um, having a relationship with one person that they're using that relational bridge to, to share the gospel with them and live the gospel out in front of them. That is the heart of the Great Commission. It's multiplying disciples, making multiplying disciples. So my one is uh, a guy that is one of my uh, high school daughter's teachers that we just really hit it off. He's not from the United States. Uh, he's new to Christianity, but he's just got a ton of questions. And in the last six months or so, he's accepted two of my invitations to come and I come to one of our church services. I invited him recently to, to begin reading the gospel of John with me, which he, uh, he said, I sat down to read the gospel of John, just a chapter or two. He said, by the time I, I got up from my chair, I read the entire thing. And he showed me he had these just pages and pages of, of notes and questions that he said, I can't wait to discuss. He's agreed to start coming to church regularly now. So I'm praying that the day will soon come when I will see him express faith in Christ. I've got my one. And now I'm challenging you and your church to join us and to find yours. Because ultimately, the only number that really matters is one. Who's your one? God is sovereign and God is gracious and God has put people in all of our lives, many more than one, who need his message of grace and love that they might turn to him and they too might know his love for them in a personal way. Let's move on to your fifth point there about God. And that's that God reminds me of his love. God reminds me of his love. Verse 11 says, This is still God speaking to Jonah in defense of his actions that he did not destroy the city of Nineveh, though Jonah wished him to. And Jonah says, I'm angry enough I could die. Jonah is throwing his fit, but God says to him in verse 11, but Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Now, there's been debate about that. Does the fact that they can't tell their right hand from their left mean that they were children? And if there's 120,000 children, does that mean you know there's 400,000, 500,000 total people when you count all the adults of various ages? Or does it mean that they're so wicked that they don't know right from wrong? Their right from their left is euphemism. And so that is an aside. It is a great number of people. It's more than one, 100,000 
400,000, 500,000. God says, I love them. And look at what he asked Jonah. Should I not be concerned about that great city? There's no other book in the Bible that ends with a question. It ends with a question in order that we might consider what the answer is. That's what I think, anyhow. It's God reminding of his, of his love. It's a rhetorical question. Should I not be concerned about that city? I am sovereign. I made them in my image, and I love them. And Jonah, I made you in my image. And Jonah, I gave you a simple job. Go and preach to them. Because I love you. I wanted you to be fulfilled in the work that I've called you to do. And I provided the fish to take you there. And you got there and you preached and they repented. And you still got angry, Jonah. God reminds me of my, his love. We've got two final questions by means of conclusion. Your first one is, how does God deal with me? If you've got your M.O. when things don't go your way, whether you're the active type that is angry and aggressive or the passive type that's kind of pouty and stays silent, you run away from God or do your own thing, what do you find God's normal response is in dealing with you? How does He deal with you to move you back to His will? We asked the question two weeks ago, and I repeated it again today. What's your whale? What does God use to swallow you up in a circumstance you don't like to help swim you back the direction he wants you to go? How does God deal with you? Is there some whale in your life? Maybe it's the idea of the vine and the worm and the wind. Some things that you're happy about, but then it doesn't go your way. And you're like, hey, God, I'm not happy about this. And God's saying, I'm just trying to get your attention. I'm just trying to have you turn to me and say, okay, God, you're sovereign. You don't want me to be concerned about the why. You want me to be concerned about the what. And you want me to be concerned about the who. And you want me to give my life to you in order that I might serve you. And so how does God deal with you personally, friends? Jonah points us the right direction, but we've got to apply it to our own lives. And your final question is, what do I learn about God? We learn that He sometimes lets us be stupid. He sometimes lets us be sinful. He sometimes lets us be selfish. And sometimes that time lasts a lot of time. Sometimes that is repeated over weeks or months, even decades as we run from God and do our own thing and shake our fist at Him because we're angry with Him and we don't like the way our life has turned out, all the while blaming Him when we need to consider our own sin and we need to repent as we've confessed and turn back to Him and go the way He wants us to go. But what do we learn about God in dealing with Him? We learn that He's still sovereign. We learn that He's still loving. We learn that as Jonah prayed... He's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger. And he desires a love relationship with us. And sometimes he allows circumstances that are difficult in our lives in order to get our attention, in order to show us who he is, but in order to show us who we are.
You've got your scripture memory verse of the month is on the bottom of your outline and we'll put it on the slide now and we'll say it together as a conclusion to our sermon. Jonah 2, 2. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help and you listened to my cry. Jonah 2, 2. Let's pray. God, our Father, I wonder how many of us are in distress this morning, though we may not be weeping or writhing sitting here in this room. Our hearts and our minds are in distress because we realize our sinfulness and we realize how long we have disobeyed and run from you. So, God, we come to you, most of us as believers in Jesus, as Christ followers. And if there's something that you have shown us today, if we haven't already, would we confess that as sin right now? And would we repent from that and turn to you right now? And God, there may be some here today that are not yet believers in Jesus and they need to admit their sinfulness, but also ask Jesus to be their Savior and Lord. Would they do that right now? God, whatever it is, would we be humble before you now so that you don't have to treat us like Jonah and send a whale or anything else to get our attention. Father, we thank you for your presence among us. We pray that we'd be obedient even at this moment. In Jesus' name, amen.